You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a bite-sized podcast that brings you real-world insights that help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we share best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demand Matrix. Demand Matrix helps you complete your data stack with technographic, intent, and revenue potential data to help you accelerate revenue. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. And I'm excited today to have Brett Hannett over with us to speak about the secret behind creating leverage in a business. Brett, welcome to the show. G'day, Ash. Uh, nice to be here and be obviously be with all the listeners. That's fantastic. And, you know, Brett, ever since I've known you, like there's been seven people that have told me that they know you. I feel like we need to do a reunion or you need to throw some barbecue, you know, once, once stuff opens up. Seriously. Well, I just got a property with a grill. I'm still practicing okay. the grill front. I don't know whether I'll be able to do it justice. I have to rely on some others to do it. But yeah, what? I'd love to. We'll only invite the people that can grill. How about that? Yeah, exactly. That sounds perfect. <laughs> it sounds perfect. All right, Brett, before we, before we dive in, can you share a little bit about how you got to where you are? Yeah, sure. So I've been in, in the industry, I hate to say it, for a few decades now, uh, always on the B2B side. Started off a techie developer, went into pre-sales, uh, then spent a good amount of time with Oracle, uh, where I was a DBA instructor. Yeah, I actually used to teach people how to tune Oracle databases and then tended to get up on stage and talk about the new features of the Oracle database in product marketing. Um, after I left Big Red, I jumped into Big Blue, which is Intel, not IBM, but Intel. Uh, what was great about Intel was you could walk into SAP and Microsoft and Oracle and everyone else on the same day with the Intel um, business card and just get a whole view of the industry and all of the shifts, both from a hardware perspective, software perspective. It was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and if you think about Intel, it's a wholly channel environment. They don't sell direct except for a few motherboards in retail shops. And so I learned a lot on how to nurture and create fantastic channel relationships there. Um, then I came over to the US. I was Australian, that's where the accent comes from. Uh, went over to the US, uh, we're in Palo Alto there in California. It was great being in Silicon Valley. And I was with Tipco Software. What are they? Integration specialists. So, you know, a FedEx parcel couldn't ship without Tipco in the background, passing messages about where parcels were and tracking parcels, et cetera. Um, Delta Airlines couldn't fly because they were scheduling not only their flight staff, but tracking baggage through complex baggage networks. Uh, and that was Tipco. Uh, and then I went back to Australia. Why? Because I wanted to get back home. Uh, but I joined McAfee and I was running age-specific marketing. Um, at the time, I had no idea that McAfee had an enterprise offering. I always saw them as B2B, yeah. uh, sorry, B2C, yeah. uh, but a lot of 50% of the business was B2B. So I really enjoyed that to the point where I moved back over here to Texas. Uh, a lot of people ask me why I moved to Texas. Yeah. It's actually pretty good. I think it gets a bad rap. Um, but I've been leading channels marketing, field marketing, and now the chief marketing officer at McAfee. So a wild and wonderful ride through several roles and obviously two countries, which has been great. Wow. I mean, and now 
you're going to learn how to barbecue. This is going to be fantastic. I mean, it's just like <laughs> the best thing ever. <laughs> I know, right? If, if you're not learning, then something's wrong. I always 100%. Say I'm, 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 yeah. That's why we started this show, because we wanted to bring people together that were uh, a little bit senior in their careers. And so the audience for this show is 7,000 other VPs who are either in go-to-market or in data science. Oh, fantastic. Topics to, you know, close to my heart. So I appreciate you wanting to have my voice in amongst them. It's good Fantastic. Stuff. So let's dive into the topic today. The topic today is channel marketing. And mm -hmm. it's interesting because the common theory is that, that the channels are a forgotten uh, piece of the revenue engine. And if that's true, then channel marketing is like lost, you know, like, like it's very, very, nobody really fully understands it. And I shouldn't say nobody because that's a pretty strong word. But like I would say most people don't fully understand the frameworks and stuff. And so when I was uh, getting introduced to you, your breadth of experience in channel marketing and was, was super appealing. And we would like to spend some time on channel marketing. And so let's start with defining and having people understand what channel marketing is. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I like how you opened it saying, I think channel in general is misunderstood by people who either operate in a direct, indirect selling model, um, but also who haven't really been involved in growing channels and see how they can scale a business. Um, I think channel marketing to me is, is a few things. There's marketing to a channel because if you're expecting their channel sales organizations to be an amplification factor to scale a business, then you need to get them on board. Uh, one thing I've learned inside McAfee, for example, is that they're selling Symantec, they're selling Trend Micro, they're selling Microsoft, they're selling McAfee. So how do you stay top of mind? Uh, or, you know, shelf space, if you're thinking retail analogy, you know, where are you in the shelf space? So that's, that's marketing too, to get them engaged and thinking about your product over than others. Then you have marketing through channel, uh, what's that? Well, that's providing them all of the assets and support that they need to carry a message to their customer. Uh, if you think about an Ingram Micro, who we obviously partner closely with, they've got hundreds of thousands of customers worldwide, whereas we sell directly to tens of thousands of customers. So as an amplification engine, that obviously interests a marketer. But you have to equip them, again, with messaging that is complementary to theirs, because sometimes you have to just have to let the ego go. Otherwise, it overrides theirs, right? It, it really is a collaborative effort on how to communicate to their customer in a really effective way and get the results you want as much as they want. Um, and then the other one is, you know, marketing from a partner. And, and I did a lot of this at Intel. Um, you know, you can market through an IBM or an HP or an Acer. But really what you're trying to do is understand what products are they taking to market and they invite you to be part of their go-to-market strategy. Um, and all three of them, different outcomes, but I think you need a balance of all three to really be effective and have a healthy channel marketing relationship with them. And I stress relationship. Yes. Uh, it all comes back to that ego thing. We've all yes. got big egos, you need to let it go a bit. I think big egos are okay as long as they come with ice cream, you know. Because then, 
that is fun people. Yeah, it's a water it down. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So you gave us a little bit of an idea of the strategy of channel marketing, right? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the components or the frameworks. Like, what are the pieces or the tools of channel marketing, if I may? Yeah, and it's varied for me across the organizations where we had to maintain them. But if you look at the the barest um, level of infrastructure or support that you need, uh, it really is a place or a repository for them to get information without you having to spend the effort, right? Um, If you think about channels, they're a scaling engine. And if you try to be too directly involved in them carrying your message to market, then your channel marketing org has to grow, grow, grow to be able to support partner after partner after partner. So one lesson I've learned is that you have to create to a large degree a self-serve model that is rich, concise, topical and useful uh, for a partner to use. So we use a partner portal uh, inside uh, McAfee. What does that campaign contain? It's got campaign kits, solution briefs, co-brandable assets where they can take the creative assets you produce, they throw their logo on within guidelines and go place it in market. You know, when I speak to partners directly, sometimes they don't even want creative, they just want text. You know, what can they cut and paste from a Word document into their own solution brief? If you think about it, we sell a lot of products, they sell a lot of services, so they produce a whole solution, but the product text comes better from our product marketing department and they can embed it in theirs. Um, The other things obviously on the portal are things that service the sales transactions or the selling um, pieces. Uh, So it's a combined sales and marketing sort of portal, if you like, uh, for the channel member to come into. Um, We've done a lot of work tuning that thing to the point where we know what pages they're landing on, what assets they're consuming. And that obviously helps you design a better set of assets that will get used uh, by them. So that that primary communication means is is the portal, um, to be honest, and that's a marketing responsibility here. Uh, Other places put it in sales or the channel org, uh, but it's been a marketing uh, set of resources that we provide. So that's basic infrastructure. If you think then um, the other components, it's it's budget, it, it's budget. And that's a difficult one, all right? If you ask the analysts, and we did, we had to have a very close look at our MDF or market development fund. Uh, I actually like the term market development fund, and I'll come back to that point versus yep. marketing development fund. Yep. Um, but that, according to the experts, should be about 1% of revenue. And again, it should be self-funded from a margin cut on your side of the business. Uh, So as your business grows, the NDF bucket should grow uh, in concert. Uh, We found out we were actually over committing our spend. Uh, And so, you know, the finance people came in and started to ask us to wind that down a little bit. But about 1% is about industry average. Uh, And if you're a $1 billion company, that's obviously a fairly healthy budget that you've got to use with your partners. The spend strategy in there, though, varies, right? You can have an earn and burn. In other words, if I sell a million, you get a certain amount of dollars. Uh, If I sell two two million, I get two times that amount of dollars. So that's the earn and burn model. And people like Microsoft have an earn and burn type of model. Um, what we have 
is a strategic investment model. In other words, if we're trying to create markets through and with our partners, then we select the solutions, the partners, the geographies, the segments that we choose to invest in. Uh, and that's very different. So, you know, I think there are pluses and minuses on both of those sides. Um, but I've actually really enjoyed in a true market development fashion, selecting who you work with. Because sometimes the partners of the past are great for maintaining a recurring revenue line. But if you're trying to grow into a cloud space or a managed services space or, or whatever new space, and it could be a new industry, then you probably need to lean on alternate providers. And they might not deliver revenue in year one and therefore the earn and burn doesn't work. Um, so that's why we choose the partners who invest in and we go big. All right, so we, we don't peanut butter our MDF. Yep. We actually do, we'll invest big there, we'll, big bets, if you like, not only in a segment play or a solution play, but in a partner play as well. So budget critical um, and your strategy around it will really, really vary. Um, the third piece is just really, I believe, all around the relationship. Right, so if you have an infrastructure that supports a, an open uh, relationship, self-serve, so it can scale, you have the budget in line. The third one is just that person-to-person -person relationship. And a lot of the focus tends to fall on the CAM or the channel account manager. Yep. And so if you're really expecting a marketing relationship to be carried and developed through owner of the account, um, I don't think it's going to be as effective as it could be. Uh, and we've seen in my experiences, you know, in the various companies that I've worked for, too much reliance on the CAM will ultimately restrict, I believe, the marketing outcomes you'll produce. Um, and so we actually have channel marketing managers, we call them CMMs. And what they do is pair up with the CAM. Uh, and, the, you know, on a quarterly or annual basis, they'll sit down with the marketing counterpart at the channel partner. And they'll design not only the selling structure in which they, you know, the quotas that they set, the products that they'll set, the margins that they'll enjoy, but they sit down and start to plot out what is our co-marketing strategy. And again, you know, on an annual basis, preferably, because marketing should be developed over an annual plan, I think, um, or quarterly, they sit down and design, okay, what are the programs we're going to send? Are they carried wholly by the partner but supported by your materials? or are they co-funded through MDF, uh, et cetera. All of those decisions can be made early in the financial year to carry you right through the year. But I think they're the three primary buckets, um, the people relationship, yep. the budget that support the development of markets, and obviously the infrastructure that will support it as and, and nurture it ongoing. And I'm really glad that you emphasize the point that do not let your people just take care of these relationships mm -hmm. because my fundamental viewpoint on partnerships with channels in general is that the company learns how to partner or builds a channel. It's not just two people or one person or one little silo team and stuff like that. And it is that the, the, the indirect business competency is a company level initiative. It is not a single team level initiative. What I've really loved over the you know, past few years is truly understanding, like if I just focus on the view as a marketer, 
And I used to do that, I have to admit. I, you know, I just wanted my marketing outcome. I wanted the McAfee logo in Ingram events, or I wanted the McAfee products in a, in, on, on the shelf uh, through you know, the, the resellers of another distributor. Then you're not going to get the result that you want. What I've really enjoyed is that we host partner marketing councils now where our top partners come into the room with us and we share with them our marketing and business objectives for the year. And then we actually go around the table and we ask our distributors, our service providers and our resellers, you know, 12, 16 person forum, does this resonate? Does this work? And you you actually have a marketing conversation, right? It's not around a reseller agreement or quotas or selling objectives. It's around marketing objectives. And you really change your view on the whole relationship. You know, I I said, you know, facetiously, we've got to lower the ego a little bit. Um, But when you actually start having cool marketing conversations with channels, your whole view and your approach fundamentally changes, I think, versus just brand presence through a paid channel with MDF. Um, I I really enjoy those conversations and I learn a lot. Uh, You can always sit there and think you're the best marketer on on the planet. But there are some brilliant marketers in those channel organisations doing innovative things through online stores. So if you're trying to move from a direct selling model into an online selling model, you can learn a lot from a channel partner where you can actually remove cost of sale um, by advertising through marketplaces. You know, Amazon being a perfect example, Ingram Marketplace being another perfect example. So, you know, they're actually leading the way in some of the transaction models um, as much as marketing models into a wholly online space. I said it earlier, it's, if you're not learning, it's yes. not a good thing, right? <laughs> That's why um, I, I really enjoy those channel relationships from a marketing standpoint. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. Um, how does one pay for channel? I know we touched a little bit on it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but are there some other points that you can educate us on how can one pay for channel marketing because it always becomes the marketing team gets scrutinized and then if the marketing <laughs> team gets yeah, scrutinized no. the channel marketing team completely got scrutinized right and so uh, give some guidelines on that yeah i mean I, it, it depends on where you are in the um in the cycle of development right if you have a healthy indirect channel model then it's fairly easy to apply industry benchmarks around a revenue model and create a bucket that you should be able to drive incremental revenues and business from, okay? Um, And that's why I said the 1%. That's generally the industry accepted average. Uh, Obviously what you then have to do is measure the success of that investment. What I've been doing is actually, if we pay for an activity, we measure the results of that activity. So that's one way. You can do micro measurement of investment types with partners Create that metrics, uh, matrix of partner and result. And if it works, then you can double down on it or you can apply the same tactic to another, potentially another partner. So that's one way. The other way from an investment perspective is if you're early in the cycle, right, we haven't got a healthy indirect revenue model yet, uh, then what you have to do is carve out your own OPEX. Uh, and I, we've done that. You know, my roles in the past we haven't had a healthy indirect model. And so you sacrifice a portion of your own direct marketing budget to co-work with a partner. 
um, and create a new relationship to a new segment and drive indirect selling result as opposed to direct. And those types of investments vary, right? They, they truly vary. If I look at my Intel model, which is all about creating markets, right? Create a market for Wi-Fi, create a market for laptops with Wi-Fi attached in them, create a market for commodity servers over big tin. That's how old I am, right? <laughs> Moving off big Unix servers or mainframes onto Linux blades. They invested to create those markets. I used to have budgets of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Not everyone has those, but in Intel, you did have them in the day, right? Where we go to a software provider, right? They're at VAR, you know, they're a valuated reseller. They throw their software around hardware and pitch it to their customers, and we would give them hardware. So that's a carve out of your own CapEx, OpEx to go enable a channel and, and thread of business. Um, but it was a, a legitimate marketing expense. You haven't created the revenue yet, but you have to invest. And I think that's where people make the mistake is to expect the partner to own all investment, okay? The other mistake that I see people make is that you make all the investment. And there, there really has to be, whether it's a 50-50 split of finance or people effort, there really has to be a shared responsibility of deriving an outcome from the business that you're trying to do. Um, because otherwise, it's, it's unhealthy. If it's all one way, in either way, it becomes unhealthy. You know, and I've seen relationships that get incredibly strained because they've been, we've been either trying to rely too much on them to carry the weight or they get too addicted to the source of MDF to offset their own margins of business. And then when you threaten to cut it off because you see no incremental revenue, they go, well, we won't sell your product anymore. Right. <laughs> so it's, not, it's not a partnership at that point in time, right? But it's, oh, it's, oh. it's really important what you just said, and I was just double down on that is you don't have to carry the full burden of the investment oh. or does, neither does the partner. And if you're not philosophically aligned on that model, don't do it. Right. Completely agree. And, and sometimes, and I've seen this in my past, you have this MDF pot and people feel obliged to spend it all, but they start to spend unwisely. Yes. You know, a really simple example, and I know it differs from geography to geography, is funded head, yes. right? Some, some partners insist that for a relationship to be really healthy, you should pay for a person to be resident in my business. Yes. And if you start beefing that team up, then your whole business is totally reliant on a headcount that you're carrying inside the partner. Uh, and that's incredibly difficult to turn off, incredibly difficult. You know, and I've been in situations where the mix of funded head and programmatic effort, in other words, the actual going to market yep. versus carrying, you know, people effort becomes really unbalanced and you just don't get what you need anymore. A lot of the traditional two distribution model partners are just wholly driven by margin. And if you're not savvy to that world, then investments that you make is, could be just seen as margin relief on that side. Yep. Okay. Uh, and that's why it's so important to measure the outcomes on a regular basis, uh, not just an annual result. You really need to start tracking month to month, activity to activity to determine are we really both carrying the weight and producing result for us both? Otherwise, you're just fueling a margin relief 
primary directive or modus operandi in those partner lands. And that's just the way they operate. Yeah. Solid points, you know, and, and uh, continuously, maybe auditing is too strong of a word, but reassessing if this is a partnership and then calling it out and creating the space for it is really important. It's uh, Yeah. It's, and this Bolton, yeah, I mean, I, and I have to admit, I, I don't want to say, you know, you can, all the mistakes are on our side. Yeah. Because um, quite frankly, um, you know, I've been in situations where partner, pro, and this is a, another point, I suppose, we talk about MDF, but it's always in concert with the selling arrangement that you have with them. All right, there's this fine balance between program profitability. In other words, how profitable are these products that you're expecting me to sell? Yep. Right. In other words, what margin are you giving me standard? And what room is there to wriggle on large deals to secure further margin relief? And I've been in situations where the program profitability side is so weak that MDF is being used to bolster the M- imbalance. Oh, wow. Um, and that that is not ideal, right? Because you're basically using MDF to treat a deficiency on another part of your own business. Yeah. So when you're creating these channel relationships, yeah, I say 1% of revenue, but it really has to be in concert with what, how profitable are you making your, your solution? Because again, they're not only selling your stuff. In most instances, you're competing. Um, So, you know, I work incredibly closely with my channel program management team to truly understand, are we competitive on the program side? And if not, what are we doing to rectify that as much as make our NDF investments truly scale and produce incremental business? Yeah. Makes sense. Let's quickly touch on the role of channel marketing in creating a moat around your business. Okay. Now, you might have to describe moat. I always think about it like in, in castle terms, but I'd love yes. to, for you to describe moat from your perspective. Yeah. Yes. So pe- people use partnerships as a way to prevent competitors from coming into their existing business, right? There is a distribution side of things where, hey, we're going to start expanding our business. But in a lot of cases, once things scale up, it's, it's used to defend your business. So it's exactly the same way that you're thinking, right? But I don't know if people think about it today. They think about channel marketing in the same way, although they can and they must, right? But I wanted to see what your viewpoints were on that. Yeah, no, look, honestly, it can be a truly effective tool. And I'll actually use it from an opposite argument. I've actually been out-marketed by our competitors in the channel. All right, and it was a combination of both the profitability value, but also how beefed up their team was to support aggressively a distribution model of product to market. So if a partner has a choice to work with you or someone else, and the someone else has a highly profitable program, and they're willing to provide more resources, more tailored resources, then you may have great programs that you think that you've got to the partner, but in all honesty, they'll just default to this. And, you know, we can lose business and bleed business that way. Now, on the contrary side, when you're creating new relationships, 
And this is the important thing. If you're creating new, you should take all the lessons of the past and all the good ideas and gold standards of the past to create a, yep. new, a yep. set of new relationships, relationships that truly protect the business um, and just keep tabs on it. But I completely agree with you. If you've got healthy profitability and MDF support around a collection of partners in segments and geographies, yep. um, then you will be protecting your business. But if you take your eye off it, uh, and let's face it, there's competition out there any, everywhere, vying. Yes. Um, you know, and I've seen cases where they'll outstrip your margin by a whole 15%. In other words, double the margin relief. Why? Because they want to buy your channel. Uh, and if you don't have an eye on that, you'll quickly start seeing customers dissipate. And you have to react. Maybe not have to equal but at least understand why is this so attractive to you? Can we come to some arrangement between profitability and marketing to get the balance back? Because um, it is, you're just fighting for shelf space uh, in yeah. partner land. Right. You also told me the story about the Intel, was it the inside sticker, which, <laughs> which was the, the best uh, channel marketing exercise that I think, or campaign, at least in my opinion, because as you were telling with you, because it has such wide distribution and such mind share for years to come it really did um and i was i was so lucky to have been a part of it uh if you think about that in its its real success was in those 90s 2000s um period where silicon was still valued by the customer right it was still seen as a premium if if I had an Intel chip inside, it meant something. Yep. Uh, and, but to Intel's credit, what they did was that they made it something. Yes. Right? It, how, was how it was they, tangible. Right. Um, yes. what, what they did effectively was it was purely a channel marketing play. Dell, we will give you these dollars on a recurring annual basis to go promote your Intel inside gear. Yep. Right. So, you know, I'd be at home in Australia watching ads and there's Dell advertising their latest laptop. And at the very end of it, the bumper, the video bumper of the Intel logo, Intel inside, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> right. They even had an audio yes. uh, track against yes. the, the brand or the sub brand. Yes. Um, but again, they created a credibly healthy relationship with Dell. In other words, Intel would pay for the majority of their advertising on TV. Yes. Right. Uh, and if that would create pull through of product. Um, th then, of course, they come to the arrangement where you have an irremovable sticker on the device. <laughs> so the consumer not only is part of the yes. understanding from a buying decision, but as they use the device every single day, they're reminded by this Intel yes. piece yes. inside. Um, it was incredibly clever on all sorts of layers. Um, and I'll, I'll give you another great example is when when we introduced to the market the first Wi-Fi enabled laptop, um, it called Centrino. So it was a chipset with the Wi-Fi on it, plus a, an Intel core processor uh, and a motherboard. So it was wholly Intel kit. Why? Because the OEM world for creating Wi-Fi components and motherboards that would all work together didn't exist. Yep. Right. So they produced a whole uh, set of chips that really they could take an HP or a Dell or an Acer, package it up beautifully, all right, uh, and then release it to market. 
But the main selling point, which was Wi-Fi and mobile, right, there were no Wi-Fi networks anywhere. So from a market enablement, in other words, MDF enablement, they'll create new relationships with airlines. Go install Wi-Fi networks in your airline lounges, please. With bookstores, borders, please install Wi-Fi networks in your um, bookstores, please. McDonald's, please install Wi-Fi networks. Uh, And we paid all of that and the telephony companies to carry the the backbone of it. Um, And they paid for it all. So now an executive could go through the airline lounge, pop into Starbucks, go get a meal at McDonald's, and I've been guilty of that. And they suddenly could use this yes. laptop oh, and get yes. the network. Um, and we seeded those laptops as well. We, we went into the top companies in Australia and we gave them all laptops. And then that wow. put pressure on internal IT teams. If I can do it in Starbucks, I should be able to connect to Wi-Fi in the office. Yes. Right? Wow. Uh, and piss all your security people off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're you're a change agent, you know. I mean, this is well, a... yeah. And it, but again, it's, it it was wow. I mean, it, that was channel marketing on yeah. steroids, right? Um, because those relationships with telcos and airlines and retailers, they did not have, and they they put the investment in. Everyone got benefit from it. But again, that's what we were talking about: X being applied. Uh, in the hope that Wi-Fi enabled laptops would take off. And they did. Yeah. Phenomenally. Yeah. Yeah. They're everywhere. This has been great. And uh, you've given us a the definition of channel marketing so that people understand that there's two partner, through partner, with partner, and for partner. So it's not just two partner and can be leads, 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 right? So there's that. There's the, how does one pay for channel marketing? The investment needs to be from both sides and needs to be reassessed periodically to make sure that the interests are all, all aligned. And more importantly, people are having fun, you know? And, yeah, then, exactly. and, then, and then you can use your channel marketing efforts in your creating a mortar around your business effort and, uh, and, and I, think, I think people should take these lessons away because a lot of people that listen to this podcast are aspiring senior executives. And the way you become a senior executive is by trying new things. And this is why we do this podcast because folks like yourself who have spent an enormous time learning and, uh, uh, and, and trying new things out can share that information with other, other people and, and those other folks that actually try these things out and then reshare information back for the next generation. So thank you for, for spending that time with us. We always ask people if there's three other folks that you can recommend in B2B tech who either lead go-to-market or data science and go-to-market for us as sales, marketing, customer success, and biz dev that you would recommend we invite to the show. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got a couple of them from my career who I just really look up to for various reasons. Um, The first one is a a guy called David Rosen. He still works for Tipco Software and he's a pure data scientist uh, and really earned his expertise on customer relationships. Um, I used to work at Loyalty Lab, which was an owned company of Tipco Software. So developing loyalty programs that would drive more customer revenue and longevity uh, of a relationship. And he has a brilliant mind. I encourage you to talk to him. He's a real character, but he helped large retailers, large telcos, uh, large airlines, how to design loyalty programs to create a better customer experience and obviously revenue outcomes. He's amazing. Um, Another guy that, from the Loyalty Lab team, actually, is a guy called Matt Howland. He was the CEO of Loyalty Lab. 
And he was really the person that I learned how to operate within a startup. You know, Matt loves the startup environment. I grew up in Intel and Oracle and Tipco, and they're all very established businesses. So to see the world from a view of a startup and a a guy that really understands SaaS, right? I was operating in a perpetual license um, revenue model. He really introduced me to SaaS, not only from a customer support and product development, but from a revenue creation. So he, he was amazing. And the third one, I just, I have to, uh, mention here is Alison Sarah. Uh, and Alison was the previous CMO of McAfee. And for someone who has a data-driven approach to everything, uh, she was it, but had this brilliant mind where she could take that data science and project it through brands. Um, she, she's just phenomenal. And again, a real character. So I encourage everyone, look them up on LinkedIn and, and reach out to them because uh, they're amazing, amazing colleagues of mine. Fantastic. And if folks want to get connected with you after this podcast, what would be the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, sure. It's just on LinkedIn. You can look me up, uh, um, Brett Hannath. I think it's B-H-A-N-N-A-T-H on LinkedIn. Uh, that's definitely the easiest way. I'm sorry if it takes me a while to get back. There's too many too many ways to reach out to people these days. Yes. <laughs> and, I, and I always say on this podcast, if you're going to reach out to a senior executive, please be specific. Probably because if idea. you're not, there, it's, there's just so much things, so many things going on. They're just going to not be able to do it. You know? So, yeah. so, but, so yeah. that I think is important. So, all right, Brett, thank you so much for spending time with us and best of luck on your journey. Uh, thank you so much. And same back to you and the whole, everyone listening. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us and share these insights with your peers.